We'll be in Revelation 13 eventually, but let's start off in Daniel chapter 2. Some things that are pertinent to our study tonight. Daniel chapter 2. We continue our study through the book of Revelation. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your insight tonight. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the clarity that it brings us in such uncertain times. We thank you, Father, for prophets like John and Daniel and Zechariah, Isaiah, among others, who not only gave over their hearts completely to you, Lord, to preach your word, to write it down, but also gave their very lives for you, Father. May we live by and learn by their example. But more than all the others, Father, we thank you for Jesus, who is not only the great prophet, the great priest, the great king, he is our Lord and Savior. And Jesus, it's because of you that we come together to study tonight. It's to draw closer to you, but Father, also to glorify the name of Jesus Christ, to hold up the name of Jesus above all names. And as we study through Revelation, I pray that you would continue to remind us that this prophecy is about Jesus. It's for Jesus. It's focused on Him. That we might be the same. So make these words live to us tonight, Father, and may we live to these words. May we not only hear them, but heed them. Not just be hearers of the word, but doers as well. May we truly take these things to heart. Come teach us, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was the first absolute dictator of an absolute world power. There were other dictators. There were other nations prior to Babylon. But once Nebuchadnezzar came along with Babylon, he dominated the world of his day. He was the absolute dictator. And what's interesting is that that's really the ideal form of government if you think about it. If you have a person who could stand up and be completely perfect, then a dictatorship is ideal because you wouldn't have any question about direction or what to do or where to go. You just follow what the man says, what the leader says, what he declares. And such it was with Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was not always right. In fact, he was, he was a sinner like so many others before and after him. But in a sheer act of God, Nebuchadnezzar came to put his faith and his trust in a young Hebrew by the name of Daniel. A young man brought in captivity from Judah, brought into Babylonian captivity, and put into the king's palace to be brainwashed along with all the other young men who were brought in, in captivity and retrained as servants in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. But Daniel was special. Daniel was unique. He was different. He had an incredible faith, even at a young age, in the Lord God. And the king came to notice Daniel and his friends. You know many of the stories of Daniel. Daniel in the lion's den, which, by the way, didn't happen until he was probably 85 years old. But Daniel is a young man choosing, deciding to not eat all the rich foods of the king that was laid out, but only to eat those things that were prescribed by God in the law. And in so doing, he and his friends became stronger and smarter and really blessed by the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar was impressed with them. You know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the whole incident of their refusal to bow down before the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar set up of himself. Being thrown into the furnace, there was a fourth person in the furnace. All these great stories come right out of the book of Daniel. But the book of Daniel, more than a book of fantastic stories, is 
what it is to the Old Testament what Revelation is to the New. It is the key, the key prophetic book in the Old Testament to unlocking Revelation in the New Testament. So we're going to start in Daniel tonight and look at a couple of things. We've seen a lot of things out of Daniel already in our studies, but this is incredibly important. Beginning in verse 31 of Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar had had a glorious but disturbing dream. And you may know this story. He called in his seers, his prophets, his magicians and said, I want you to interpret this dream. And they said, great, tell us the dream. And he said, no, I want you to tell me the dream and then interpret it. That way I'll know your interpretation is legitimate. I want this to come completely from you guys. And they were all freaked out. And so all of the seers were being taken off. They were going to be murdered because not one of them could bring the, the interpretation of the dream. And Daniel said, "Give me, let me have a chance at it. Let me take a shot. And he comes before Nebuchadnezzar, and that's where it picks up in verse 31. You, O king, says Daniel, interpreting the dream, explaining the dream, says you were looking and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of the statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And you continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them, and then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. An incredible dream. But there's something I want you to understand. Not so much in the, in the explanation of the dream, but what was going on as Nebuchadnezzar had this dream. For it's a dream of kingdoms, but this dream was from the perspective of man. This was from the perspective of Nebuchadnezzar. It's a grand humanistic dream of empires, kingdoms, and the glory of man. As Nebuchadnezzar saw, depicted in this grand statue, the gold head and the silver arms and chest, and the bronze belly, and the iron legs, and then of course the feet of, of clay and iron, and all those different metals in this one statue, hard for him to understand, and yet still it was glorious. It was glorious for him to see this statue, and, and I, I believe that the statue probably looked like Nebuchadnezzar. We know that the head was a picture of Babylon, the gold, the glorious rule, and the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. But it was from a man's perspective. That gold head being Babylon, the silver being Medo-Persia, which would follow Babylon and conquer it. The brass or bronze being Greece that would then conquer the Persians. And then after Greece came the conquering army of Rome. Two legs of iron, by the way, which is interesting because Rome divided into the east and the west. And so these two legs of iron depicting Rome. And it's the perfect picture of humanity's vision for itself. A great statue. If you ever had the opportunity to visit Washington, D.C., I lived there for three years and was able to be in and out of the city constantly. And Cheryl and I would have friends come to visit. And we, we got to where we knew the city like the back of our hand. And we, could, we had a whole route that we would take through the monuments. But to stand in front of the, the Lincoln Memorial, it's impressive. This great stone statue of President Lincoln. Or to go to the Jefferson Memorial and see this bronze statue of Jefferson. It's kind of how we do things. The Washington Memorial, that spire that reaches up into the sky and we look and we're impressed. We're impressed with our leaders. We're impressed with our history. Boy, we are impressed with our nations. And Nebuchadnezzar's dream has always been the dream of mankind. 
The humanistic dream of the glorious work of man. But the thing that disturbed him in this dream was this ominous and impending stone. This stone that was not cut out by human hands. Obviously there's something of the divine in this stone and it comes flying through the air and smashes into the feet of the statue and the rest of the statue crumbles to absolute oblivion like chaff on the summer threshing floor. It's blown away. And this disturbs Nebuchadnezzar. This upsets him. And we know, looking back, that the stone, not cut out with human hands, is Jesus Christ and his coming kingdom. It's the result of the ultimate kingdom authority coming into the world and the absolute decimation and destruction of the kingdoms of man. Now look down at verse 44. It tells us in those days, in the days of those kings, the, uh, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which, has never, which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. But it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, that it crushed the iron and the bronze and the clay and the silver and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation, Daniel says, is trustworthy. Now, why are we talking about this before getting into Revelation 13? Because we need to understand something from perspective. Man has a certain perspective. God has a completely different perspective. Man looks at the kingdoms of the world and sees a great statue, glorious and awesome. God looks at the kingdoms of the world and sees something completely different, which we read about in Daniel chapter 7. Flip over there. Daniel chapter 7. Now Daniel is having a dream. And Daniel is privileged to see once again the nations of the world. But he's not looking at the nations of the world from a Nebuchadnezzar humanistic perspective. He is now seeing the nations of the world the way God, the Lord, sees the nations of the world. Listen to this dream. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. And he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, which would be the Mediterranean. The four great, and four great feasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was also given to it. And behold, another beast, the second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking. And behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying, extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. That may sound familiar. And while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. That little horn, by the way, that's a, that's a key word there, little horn. It's a name for Antichrist. For that speaks of Antichrist coming up in the time of the last kingdom, a revived Roman Empire. But what's interesting is God now gives Daniel visions of the same, the same kingdom. The lion is Babylon. 
The bear is Medo-Persia, large and lumbering. The leopard would be Greece, quick on its feet. But followed, following Greece, a great beast, ugly, frightening, terrifying, difficult even to describe. It's Rome, but not just Rome. It's Rome that fell, and then Rome ultimately that would be raised up, will be raised up again as a final world empire. Why the difference between God's vision and Nebuchadnezzar's dream? Because in the eyes of man, human government is beautiful. But in the eyes of God, human government is beastly. In the eyes of man, a great world leader would be a blessing, whereas in the eyes of God, a great world leader would be a beast, will be a beast. And things right now in our world are so intense in Israel, so intense in Israel. And listen to this, this is absolutely amazing. I actually heard this quote from a Jew in Israel recently saying, I would follow Satan himself if he would bring us peace. This is where the mentality is going. A people who, and we've talked about this one piece so badly, that they will take it at almost any cost. From anybody, if you can promise us peace, exactly what Daniel prophesies in Daniel chapter 9. That a covenant will be made, and they're going to accept the covenant. Why would the people of Israel accept a covenant from someone who, could be, who, who is Antichrist? Why would they do that? For peace. For peace. We cannot possibly understand the effects of nearly 2,000 years of incredible persecution and dispersion of the Jews, of tribulation, of holocaust. And the reason why Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Omer's convergence plan is supported in Israel right now, a plan that means giving up, giving up land and backing off even further behind a wall and cowering literally, this plan is supported in the public conscious because they just want peace, even if Satan could bring it. And the stage is set for such an event. Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 1 tells us the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea having ten horns and seven heads and on his horns were ten diadems and on his heads were blasphemous names does this beast sound familiar look back at Revelation 12 verse 1 a great sign appeared in heaven a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars and she was with child and she cried out being in labor and in pain to give birth and another sign appeared in heaven behold a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and on his heads were seven diadems verse 3 describing the dragon which is not antichrist who is the dragon? Satan is Verse 3 of Revelation 12 tells us Satan is the dragon. But now, in Revelation 13, suddenly we see a beast, and this beast looks an awful lot like Satan. Why? Because it's Antichrist. He is the agent through whom and by whom Satan will work in the last days, especially in that time called the Tribulation. Reading on, verse 2, Revelation 13, And the beast which I saw was interesting. Watch this. Remember what we read in Daniel 7. It was like a leopard. And his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. A lion, a bear, a leopard. We just read about those three things. Daniel saw the same exact thing. He saw the same vision that John is now seeing. And the dragon, verse 2, gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Listen, the beast who comes up out of the sea is one who functions with the authority and the agency of the dragon. But he is not the dragon. This is none other than Antichrist himself. 
Now you Bible students may recall, Antichrist doesn't mean the antithesis of Jesus. Antichrist is not one opposed to Jesus. Antichrist, the little rendering of the phrase, is another Christ. Another, a replacement, a Christ figure. That's what Antichrist literally means, a Christ figure. We're going to talk about that more in coming studies. It's very interesting, especially as connected to the Roman Catholic Church, but we won't go there right now. This is another Christ, this is one Antichrist who would put himself in the place of Christ, who would present himself to the world as a Messiah of sorts, as a Savior, as a type of one who could save. Now a couple things to note about this other Christ, this Antichrist. I want you to see these quickly. We've talked about Antichrist. We saw him and already discussed him in Revelation chapter 6. We're still in that parenthetical section in the middle of Revelation where we're understanding and seeing things that are going to be laid out across the entire tribulation period. And this description of Antichrist is very telling. And one thing to note, he comes up out of the sea. He comes up out of the sea. You're going to see another beast in a few minutes. There's not just one. There's more than one. A second beast that will come out of the land. We'll explain that momentarily. But the beast coming out of the sea is very important to note. There are a couple of geographic reference points that every Bible student should be aware of when the Bible talks about the land and talks about the sea. Nine times out of ten, when the Bible talks about the sea, as we already saw in the book of Daniel, chapter 2, the great sea is the Mediterranean. It's the Mediterranean. That is the sea that was in, in, the, in the place and where Israel is. It's the location and people understood that to be the great sea when they would look out to the west. The Mediterranean Sea. But the Mediterranean Sea is also a picture in scripture of humanity. The sea of humanity. That Antichrist doesn't just come popping up with horns and looking like this monster out of the sea. But he comes out of the sea of humanity. For the Mediterranean throughout scripture is also a picture of humanity in general. Picture of humanity. Daniel chapter 7 verse 2 again said, Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, the Mediterranean. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different than one another. The four great beasts, four nations, coming out of the sea of humanity, these great nations, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, we've talked about. And so the sea is the Mediterranean, it's the sea of humanity. The land, the land on the other hand, is always Israel. The Bible talks about the land, or the beautiful land. It's talking about Israel, which indicates not only the land of Israel itself that God apportioned to his people, but it also means the people. Israel the people and Israel the land. Listen to this, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 17. At that time they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. All the nations will be gathered to it, to Jerusalem, for the name of the Lord. Nor will they walk any more after the stubbornness of their evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah will walk with the house of Israel, and they will come together from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers as an inheritance. And then I said, how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of the nations. And I said, you shall call me my father and not turn away from following me. Now I mention all this. And I encourage you, again, by the way, to consider joining us on our trip to Israel in March. But I mention this because Israel is literally at the heart of the biblical map. Take a look at that map for just a moment. Oh my goodness. In 1591, a man by the name of Heinrich Bunting drew this famous map. It's called the Cloverleaf Map of Israel. And it proclaims an attitude. It's a biblical attitude. And that is that between Europe, Asia, and Africa, at the very center, at the heart of all things on planet Earth, at the heart of all things is Israel. 
Israel is that circle. And then at the heart of the circle would be Jerusalem itself. And this was the attitude. This is a biblical attitude, gang. This is the way God views the world. Not separated by continents and nations in the way that we do, but he looks at Israel at the dead center of everything going on in the world. By the way, turn on CNN or Fox News and you'll see the same thing there. Israel is at the heart of everything. And again, I need not bore you with going back over things we've discussed so many times with Israel, but that is at the center of everything going on on planet Earth. And so that map is very accurate, very interesting. Again, it's, it's, a, it's just a typology, typological drawing that this guy did. But it explains and, and declares what Scripture declares about Israel. By the way, down there in the corner is America. Way down on the Yeah, far left. Where's America in biblical prophecy? We'll get there. We'll talk about that. But why such a distinction now? Going back to this idea of the land versus the sea. Why such a distinction between the sea of humanity and where Antichrist comes from and the people of the land where another beast is going to come from? Why distinguish between the two? Because for some 2,000 years of world history, there were only two kinds of people. Actually, you could literally say more than 2,000, probably 2,500 years. Of world history, there were two kinds of people in the world from God's perspective. There were the people of the covenant land, the Jews, and there were the people of the sea of humanity, the Gentiles. And that's how God would view humanity and history. Two kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles. Frank Jurewski one time said, and I wrote this down and I laughed about this again, this quote I I had last time I taught through this. He said, Jews can be in a group that is 1% of the surrounding population and still speak as if they're the majority. Which cracks me up. There certainly is a a pride among the Jewish people of their nationality, of their heritage, which is, to my mind, the greatest heritage of any nation in the history of the world. One that draws back literally centuries. Greatest heritage until, that is, a third group emerged. There were the Jews. There were the Gentiles. But by the Lord's wonderful doing, a third group emerged that is neither Jew nor Gentile. Ephesians chapter 2 Verse 12 tells us, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Gentiles, as opposed to Jews. And Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Group number three is the people of the Lord Jesus Christ. People of the sea of humanity, Gentiles. People of the land, the Jews. And people of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Christians. Galatians chapter 3 verse 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Which means, my friends, we have the greatest heritage of any people who have ever lived on the face of the earth. We draw back to Abraham's promise. And that promise is as much for you and me today as it was to Abraham when God first gave it. Man, what a wonderful confidence. You know, while people in America are are chasing after, well, I'm this kind of American, or I'm that kind of American, and now, of course, the hot topic right now is I'm Mexican-American because of the whole whole, uh, thing with the borders. The bottom line is, yeah, I, I live in America, but I'm Christian. I am a person of Jesus Christ. My heritage goes way back to before this country was ever founded, way back before any country was ever founded, when God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless your seed. The book of Hebrews tells us, by the way, that seed is the seed of faith. 
Romans chapter 4, Paul says the same thing. It's the faith. People of faith are people of the promise. Now, back to Antichrist, back to the beast. He comes up out of the sea of the Gentiles, and as Daniel prophesies in Daniel 9.26, he will be of Romantic European descent. He will have Roman blood flowing through his veins. And again, we've already seen him at work back in Revelation chapter 6, depicted as a conquering rider on a white horse in the first half of the tribulation. Why a white horse? Because he's coming to save. He's riding in on his stallion. He's, he is another Christ. He is trying to put himself forward to look like Christ as a savior of the world. What is he doing riding that horse? He's establishing his authority and establishing his rule. So he comes up out of the sea. Second thing to note is like the dragon, he has ten heads and seven horns. Just like with the dragon in Revelation 12.3, who the seven heads indicate seven nations set against Israel across time. And if you missed our study of Revelation chapter 12, it's two parts. It was a long one. You can pick up two CDs to, to study that and catch up if you'd like to. But the seven nations that had all been opposed to Israel represented in these seven horns are Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. By the way, speaking of Persia, once again, just keep watching Iran. Just keep watching, because their, their most recent comment now, their most recent statement, statement is, if America comes against us, we're taking out Israel. Which is exactly what they want to do. That's the whole idea. That's the whole purpose for the nuclear program. Don't be deceived. It's not about nuclear power. It's about having a weapon that can drive, finally, drive Israel into the sea. And things are heating up over there, gang. But Antichrist now shares the ten heads and the seven horns of the dragon because he will briefly rule over a reactivated Roman Empire. An empire that, as we've talked about before, I believe we see growing up in the European Union. And this is fascinating. Back in 1948, you know that is the year of Israel's rebirth as a nation. When Israel came to be, God said, can a, can a nation be born in a day? Will I, be, will I bring to the point of delivery and not, and not deliver? And so Israel became a nation, May 14, 1948, in the same year, a group of nations met and called themselves the Big Ten. The Big Ten, or the Club of Rome, and today they are the European Union, which sets the stage for Antichrist's revival of that last Roman Empire. Now back in 476 A.D., Rome as a unified power finally and officially fizzled out. Humpty Dumpty fell off the wall. Did you know, by the way, Humpty Dumpty is about Rome? Listen to the words of it. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. And many have tried to do it. Charlemagne, Napoleon, Bismarck, even Hitler tried to reunify Europe under his grand plan... Why? Why? These guys keep trying to revive this empire. Because man, that is at the heart of what Satan wants to do. That's the empire that Antichrist is going to rule over. And so watch those things going on there as well. Again, it is the restraining power currently of the Holy Spirit in the church, in the world, that I believe is stemming the tide of this beastly empire that wants so badly to emerge. It is only because of the presence of the Spirit that this is being held back. When the church goes, when the Spirit goes, it's going to come like a flood. And the world will see a revived Roman Empire revived by Antichrist. 
Now Daniel tells us that the ten horns are ten kings to come who ultimately will abdicate their power to the beast from the sea. If that's a little difficult to understand or you want more explanation, we're going to get there. We still have several chapters of Revelation left to go, so it'll, it'll become very clear to you. But Daniel chapter 7 verse 24, Daniel tells us, As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise. And another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones, and will subdue three kings, and that's Antichrist. So we get this emerging picture, it's a little vague, it's like looking through fog, but we get this picture that there will be ten nations with ten kings, gathered together as a revived empire here. And Antichrist will emerge as an eleventh king, and he will put down three, and the seven that are left, seven horns, will abdicate authority to Antichrist and will serve under him. And we'll see that played out even more so in coming chapters. But consider this again. The beast that we saw. The beast that, that John sees. He, he describes this leopard, this bear, this lion. And it's the same beast again that we saw in Daniel chapter 7. But it's interesting they're backwards. They're backwards. In Daniel chapter 7 we see first the lion. Then we see the bear. Then we see the leopard. Here John sees the leopard, then he sees the bear, then he sees the lion. Why? Daniel was looking forward in time, John's looking back. So it, it, it makes some sense when you look at it that way. From Daniel's perspective, these beasts were to come. From John's perspective, these beasts are representative of what has happened, of what is past tense. Now Antichrist will be Satan-motivated. He will begin as Satan-motivated, but again, he will become Satan-possessed. And he will be the personification of all four of these beastly empires of man. He will personify the worst of the worst. And when we get, by the way, to Revelation chapter 17, we're going to name Antichrist. That'll be fun. We look forward to that. We will give Antichrist a specific name, a human name. I'm going to tell you who he is. But wait for it. Verse 3, Revelation 13. <laughs> Just a little hook to get you back. Revelation 13, verse 3. I saw one of his heads. Now watch this. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast at this point in the tribulation. It's possible that what's being indicated here is that Antichrist is going to be assassinated. He's going to be taken out. But... In, a, in an uncreative but brilliant move, Satan will seemingly raise Antichrist from the dead to the worship of the entire world. Something to understand about Satan. God is a creator. Satan is a counterfeiter. Satan is not a creator. He doesn't have a creative bone in his body. He doesn't create new things. He just takes old things and reworks them. He tries to twist things into being what he wants them to be and then he calls it creative. This is not creative. The idea of raising someone from the dead has been done 2,000 years ago when God did it through Jesus Christ, our Savior, who was raised from the dead. But we see this picture here, interesting, that one of his heads, as if it had been slayed, his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. So are you saying, Rick, you think Satan has the power to raise from the dead? It's a good question. A couple of schools of thought on this. The first one is that this is an actual death and an actual raising. Quickly flip over to Revelation 17 and look at verse 8. School of thought number one, Antichrist actually is assassinated, actually does die, and actually is raised back to life. Revelation 17.8 says, The beast that you saw was and is not, and is about to come up out of the abyss 
and go to destruction. And all those who dwell on the earth, whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. It's cryptic language, but it indicates that he was and then suddenly was not anymore and then was again or is to come. Death, burial, resurrection. It's possible that we're talking about an actual resurrection of Antichrist. And at this point in the tribulation, Antichrist will not just be demon-possessed, he will be Satan-possessed. That if Satan raises him, if that's actually what's going on here, that he will indwell Antichrist 100% completely, this man will be Satan in flesh. The other school of thought, and it's the one that I lean a little bit more toward, is the appearance of death and the appearance of rising. In other words, Satan pulls a fast one. That he fakes the whole thing. It's interesting because John inserts a little Greek conjunction into this sentence. If you're taking notes, you might want to jot this down. It's hos. O-S. Omega Sigma. Hos. It's just a two-word, two-letter little word. And it's a conjunction that indicates a weak relationship between words and events. Stick with me on this and I'll explain what I mean. The wound may not actually result in death. It looks as though it did. That's why, the uh, going back to Revelation 13, that's why the New American Standard Bible translates it the way it does. I saw one of its wounds as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed. So the wound may not actually result in death. It's as if it resulted in death. It looks like he was killed. It looks possibly like he was assassinated even though he truly wasn't. As if it had been, is that, that entire phrase for us in English, as if it had been, is one little word in the Greek, os. And os just means there's a loose connection, a very weak connection between these two events. The assassination and the actual death. Mm, it just looks like it. It's possible. And the other reason, by the way, that I think that this is not an actual death, personally, John chapter 5 verse 21 tells us the following, As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice. Jesus Christ is the only one who has the authority to raise from the dead. He's the only one who has that power. He had the power in and of Himself. He, as we've talked about before, raised Himself. It was by His power, by the Spirit of Christ, that Christ Himself was raised. And Revelation 1.18, Jesus says, I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Satan does not. Jesus does. Jesus alone has the power to raise up the dead. And so I don't think that this is an actual assassination. I think it's an attempt. I think it looks like he dies, and they are going to fake it and make it look like it comes back to life. And in this moment, oh... What happens? What happens when the world buys into this deceit? Oh, they fall down and they worship. They worship Antichrist. They have a great party lifting up his name. Flip in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 11. Second to last book of the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 11. Looking at verse 15. <coughs> 
Zechariah 11, 15. The Lord said to me, Take again for yourself the equipment of a foolish shepherd. Foolish shepherd is Antichrist. For behold, I'm going to raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for the perishing, seek the scattered, heal the broken, or sustain the one standing, but will devour the flesh of the fat sheep and tear off their hoofs. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword will be on his arm, look at this, and on his right eye. His arm will be totally withered and his right eye will be blind. His right eye blind, his right arm withered. It may be the result of a seemingly fatal blow or a feigned death that happens to Antichrist. I believe that's what's indicated right here. The attempt at his life and the falsification of his death. Now quickly back to Revelation 13. Antichrist will appear to be assassinated. He will appear to be resurrected. And the entire world will fall prey to the deception. And Satan's original desire... The desire that got him kicked out of heaven in the first place will come true for a short time. He will be worshipped. Verse 4 tells us, and into verse 3, the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast, and they worshipped the dragon, because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? And you know, just thinking about worship, worship inflates everybody Except Jesus. Jesus is the only one who is not overinflated when we worship Him. He's the only one that when worship goes up, blessing comes out. Blessing comes down. The rest of us get inflated. The rest of us get puffed up. The heart of man cannot deal with worship very well or for very long because we start to think more highly of ourselves than we truly are. And the result of worship at Jesus' feet always means more grace. Whereas the result of worship at anyone else's feet yields more arrogance. So we worship Jesus and no other. Now watch the beast's response to worship. Verse 5. There was given to him, this is Antichrist, a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months, three and a half years, was given to him. This blasphemous mouth. We see it talked about in Daniel chapter 11. We see it talked about in Daniel chapter 7. Antichrist will have a mouth that speaks blasphemies. He goes head to head with the Lord and calls down all kinds of horrible statements and arrogant words. And he has authority, however, to act for the last three and a half years of the tribulation. Verse 6 goes on and says, And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. This is really cool. Because following this phony rising and deceived worship, Antichrist is now on a roll. Daniel 11.36 The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods and he will prosper until the indignation, the tribulation, is finished. Verse 6 Blasphemy toward God, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. I really like the way that's written. Those who dwell in heaven... Watch the wording here. Look at verse 6. You might even want to circle this in your Bibles where it says, He blasphemes God's name and he blasphemes his tabernacle. What is his tabernacle? It's those who dwell, literally, tabernacle in heaven. It's the same word. Tabernacle and dwell is, and dwell is the same word there in that verse. And in, in what John is saying to us, it's wonderful here. 
I don't know about you, but during this time when Antichrist is speaking blasphemous things against God and against his tabernacle, I'm going to be that tabernacle. I'll be one of those who are that tabernacle, that is, those who are dwelling in heaven. You know what he's going to be saying? Those uptight, fundamentalist, radical, right-wing religious fanatics are finally gone from the world. They're finally not here. It's no wonder that the aliens chose to pull them out. They were the problem. They were the issue here. And now there's no real God but me, Antichrist will say. All those missing, misguided people obviously were cleared out for the greater good. It's natural selection. Nature selected for them to be taken off the face of the earth. He will blaspheme the church. He will blaspheme those who are tabernacling in heaven. But verse 6 tells us something else, and don't miss this, that the raptured church, which is tabernacling in heaven, we tabernacle in heaven because we're in heaven temporarily. A tabernacle is a tent. You pitch your tent because you're camping out, not because you're sinking your roots. You're only there temporarily. We are those who are tabernacling in heaven during the seven years of tribulation, but we're not there for good. Now, we're going to be where Jesus is forever once the church is raptured, but we're with him in heaven during that seven years, tabernacling temporarily until we come back with him to rule and reign in the millennial kingdom. Now, how do you know this? How do you know that our permanent home is yet to come? That, that, that our permanent home isn't just once we go to heaven, we just stay in heaven. Jesus says, hey, I'm going to prepare a place for you, John 14, 3. And I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. He promises us a home with him. But that home, gang, and we've got to understand this in Scripture, it's very, very clear we have a short-term home that he prepared for us for seven years in heaven during the tribulation, that we do, do not go through the wrath. We're protected, say, from the wrath. We come back with him. Revelation 19 is clear about this. And we will rule and reign with him for a thousand years. Then what? Then what? Then, new heaven. New earth, new Jerusalem, and we ride off on into eternity and we live literally happily ever after. But know this, that where he is, we will also be. Going on to verse 7, there's something else interesting here we'll get to in just a second. It says, it was also given to him, that is Antichrist, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. Wait a minute, hold on. <laughs> Well, it says that it was given to him to make war with the saints. The saints. And to overcome them. So, he's making war with the church. And if he's making war with the church, the saints, that's on earth where Antichrist is. Satan was cast out. Remember in chapter 12, it's all happening on earth. So is the church actually maybe not raptured? Maybe the church is here. Because Antichrist, and there are Bible scholars who say, see, this is proof positive that Antichrist is fighting against the church. He's going after the church in the world during the tribulation. I don't think so. First of all, it tells us the beast will for a time overcome these saints. These saints will be overcome by the beast. However, Jesus said of the church, Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it, will not overcome it. Satan cannot overcome the church. We see a lot of sin in the church today. And we see a lot of sorrow. But Satan has not and will not overcome the church, the body of Christ. And I'll tell you what, until he calls us home, I believe in the church. And I see the church in a very positive light. A lot of people like to rag on the church. 
and beat up on the church and say, oh, the church is the problem of all kinds, or it's the, it's the, the source of all kinds of problems in the world today. And I say, praise God for the church because it's through the church that people's lives are saved. It's through the agency of the church that the Holy Spirit is at work. As I said this morning, man, when you go out this door, you go into the world subversively as missionaries for the Lord. You don't have to get on a plane and go to Africa to be a missionary. God bless the missionaries in Africa and be with them. But again, you are missionaries every moment of your life when you step outside of the church. It's wonderful. I had a friend who was in the military and saw his military career as government-funded mission work. He said, this is great. I'm sent all over the world as a missionary for Christ. And America pays for it. And that's the right attitude. That's the attitude of a servant of Jesus Christ in the world. That we are going out and we are serving. We are missionaries right here on Whidbey Island. God needs people on Whidbey Island to be saved. God needs people on Fidalgo Island to be saved. God needs people in western Washington and northwest Washington to be saved. We're missionaries. That's why we're here. That's why God planted us here. That's why he's positioned us right where we are. Now... Again, someone might say that here's the church present on earth going through the tribulation. And I say, eh, thanks for playing. That's not what's going on here. There are three groups of people in the Bible who are specifically referred to as hagios, as saints. Hagios is the Greek word for saints, holy ones, separated ones. The three groups of people are the church. Second group is the tribulation saints, that is those who will come to faith in Jesus at this time. There will be people who find faith in Jesus. We know that. We've seen the soul harvest back in Revelation 7 and and prior to that. So there are going to be believers, the saints, alive on planet earth at the time. Not the church, but tribulation saints. And number three, Israel. Israel is referred to as the saints. They're also called the elect. When Jesus refers to the elect in Matthew 24, he's talking about Israel. Planet or present on the planet at that time. But the beast, gang, the beast will not overcome the church. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him, they overcame him, listen, they overcame him. Because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony and they did not love their life even when faced with death for this reason rejoice O heavens and you who dwell in them. Who's dwelling, who's tabernacling in the heaven? Those who overcame the beast not those who will for a short time be overcome by the beast. The beast will overcome the tribulation saints. The beast will overcome Israel during the time of tribulation for a short time. But the church gang is completely absent from this chapter except that we are those who are tabernacling in heaven check this out we saw this verse before those of you who have gone through all the study look at verse 9 it's interesting I'm skipping ahead here verse 9 says if anyone has an ear let him hear same thing that Jesus said to every single one of the churches the seven churches of chapters 2 and chapter 3 in Revelation he who has an ear let him hear but he says in that context to the church what the Spirit says to the churches. Suddenly we have the same phrase here, but the phrase, what the Spirit says to the churches, is absent. Why? Because the church is absent. It's not here at this point in the tribulation. And that's what's missing. Interesting. Well, back in verse 7, the saints cannot be the church, because certain, uh, um, but there's certain to be at least one group of people, certain to at least be Israel and probably the tribulation saints as well. Daniel chapter 7 
Verse 21, Daniel said, I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. And again, the saints there are Israel. Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. Now all who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. And if anyone, verse 10, is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here, listen to this, here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Notice this phrase, all who dwell on earth. All who dwell on earth. Again, it's important the word dwell here is not tabernacle. The word is defined dwell. Back in verse 8, all who dwell on earth. The word is not tabernacle. The word is now the Greek word katoikeo. 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 Yeah, there you go. Katoikeo. It's a little easier to say when you read it several times. It means, and check this out, because there's a difference between tabernacling and katoiketoing. <laughs> katoiketo means a permanent home. Not a tabernacle. Not a tent. Those who are dwelling in heaven during the tribulation, it's temporary. It's a part-time home set up by Jesus, prepared by Jesus for us. Those dwelling on earth, gang, all those who dwell on earth, all those who have sunk their roots, all those who are saying, this world is my home. This world is my permanent home. And what we're talking about here is comfort zones. We're talking about people who are going to fight for their right to live on this planet we're talking about carnality and settling in and saying this is the life that I'm going to live and I don't care what you say, God of the heavens. This is my home. This is my permanent home. Isn't it great to know that this world is not our home? That we are just passing through? That we're not settlers, we're sojourners? Let me say this to you. Always maintain a sense of not belonging. Always maintain that sense. Whether things are good, bad, or ugly, it just doesn't matter. Maintain the sense that you do not belong here. This is temporary. Boy, when we have that attitude, the bills come, alright, you pay them. The problems come, alright, you deal with them. The wife has to go to the hospital, alright, you take her. <laughs> this world is not my home and if you feel like you don't fit in here praise God because you don't I don't we're looking as Hebrews 11 tells us we're looking for a better place Abraham, Moses, these guys were looking for a better place a better home not the promised land by the way Moses' eyes were not fixed on just getting to the promised land the Hebrew writer tells us no he was looking for a better place a place that wasn't seen by eyes yet a place that was to be. And we want to join with those who, like in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, did not love their life even when faced with death. Charles said this afternoon, do you suppose that this situation with the kidney stones, that this is going to be Satan's attack against my involvement in what we're doing at the bridge? Do you suppose that this is going to be an ongoing thing that he's going to keep bringing again and again against me? And I said, well, remember what Jesus said. Don't be afraid of those who can kill the body. Don't fear that. 
You fear the one who can kill the body and soul and send it to hell. That's the one worth fearing. But don't fear those who can go after the physical body. John is saying here, and he ends up his statement by saying, here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. John is saying this intense pressure calls for intense perseverance. Now understand, he's speaking to three groups of people now. He's speaking both to the people at the time of tribulation, saying, hang in there, persevere, I know it's hard. Saints who, who the dragon and the beast are going after, hang in there. Persevere to the end. This is where your faith is tested. Hang strong. You say it's alive in the tribulation. Paul, or, or John is also talking to the people of his day. Going through possibly as intense a persecution, maybe not quite, but a persecution similar in that day to what the tribulation will be in the last seven years when the church was being torn apart and families uprooted and brothers and fathers and sisters and mothers hung on stakes in Nero's garden and dipped in hot wax and set ablaze and all this persecution, this awful thing going on throughout the Roman Empire against the Christians and John cries out in the middle of Revelation here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints he's talking to his own people Pastor John is pastoring his own people and he's pastoring those who will be alive during the tribulation. And he's pastoring you and me as we read these things. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints so that you and I today in our lives can say with complete boldness, bring it on, Satan. Bring it on. Take your best shot. You don't faze me. I'm a child of the king. And I don't live here, not for long. This is grace under pressure. This is why Paul said, 2 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Man, as I, I probably talk about this way too much. But when I look in the mirror in the morning and I see the decay, <laughs> guess what? My inner man is better than it has ever been. Because I'm being constantly renewed and restored and drawn closer to the Father. My faith life now, I would not want to go back and be 16 years old again. And I was somewhat of a rabid 16-year-old Christian. I, I love the Lord. But what I see in the Lord now, what I experience in Jesus now, light years apart. My body was in much better shape as a 16-year-old. But my spirit is in much better shape today. And every day I wake, my spirit is being renewed, as Paul says, day by day. He says, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And once again, I'll say it, you do not belong here. This world is not your home. You don't belong here and we won't be long here.